loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, this is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Shelby Forsythia. Shelby's the author of Your Grief, Your Way, and Permission to Grieve, and podcast host of Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. Through a combination of practical tools and intuitive guidance, she helps grieving people reclaim their power and peace of mind after devastating loss. Her work's been featured on Huffington Post, Bustle, and The Oprah Magazine. Welcome, Shelby. Hi there, Cheryl. I'm really glad to be with you this afternoon. And glad to have you, too. Uh I want to start by saying that um, I pre- we have very compatible viewpoints, as you've probably noticed, and I really especially ap- appreciated that um, your book is a day-by-day guide of very short uh, entries, sometimes philosophical, I guess, about grief, sometimes practical suggestions, different things, different all the length I could handle uh, when my wife first died uh, almost 25 years ago. So I think that's true of, of um, not everybody. Some people just read voraciously. Um, but for me, it was no reading for a while. So um, I think that's the right format for sure. Is, was that true of you as well? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And after my mom died, I struggled to to focus on on anything really, but especially words. It's like I saw lines on the page and I knew that they meant something, but to transmute that into any kind of meaning was almost impossible. And it was kind of a struggle because I lost my mom unexpectedly during my last semester in college. So I was 21 and having to write my final thesis and, and do all of these large projects that included a great, great quantity of text. And even right now, I could not tell you one piece of information that I read in that six months. I know that I did. And somehow I comprehended it. I made it, I turned it into something that had meaning to other humans. But <laughs> Somebody thought you did anyway, huh? Right. <laughs> I got the diploma eventually. But, but oh, my word, to be able to focus and read and to actually take in the meaning of words was so hard. And so to create a book that has such short little passages about grief. It's like, this is all that's that's being asked of you in this moment is 200 words or less, half a page, really. And if you skip a day, no problem, right? <laughs> right. Well, even if you jump around days, I tell people you don't have to start at January and end in December. You could start right now in October and, and go wherever you like, or you can play uh, your grief your way roulette and just flip open to a page and see if it resonates with you. That can always be interesting, can't it? Yes. But let's talk about your own loss um, to start out with. So you just told me it was a sudden loss of your mother in what I would call a launching period of life. Mm-hmm. And so um, people in that age group are busy going out from, and then when someone dies, they have to go back to, in a way. Uh, so it's a very confusing time to have a loss of a parent, I feel. Um, but I don't know how it was for you and, you know, how she died and all that makes a difference in grief, doesn't it? 
It does. And simultaneously, I think you're right that it kind of doesn't. There's a universality, especially here in the Western world, of being in your early 20s and emerging into the world for the first time and to have any great loss happen. Um, death, divorce, diagnosis, major move, financial crisis is really devastating at that time. Um, essentially, her death was the world's most unfortunate cherry on top of four years of major losses in my life, including uh, my father having brain aneurysms that almost took his life, uh, me coming out as a queer woman in the South and not really being accepted for that, and then developing an eating disorder as a result. And as soon as my father's treatments and surgeries were over for brain surgery, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and she went through chemo, radiation, surgeries. I mean, the full gamut of mm. what needs doing for a severe breast cancer diagnosis. And she was declared cancer free in January of 2013. And then right after Thanksgiving, um, it came back very suddenly and, and doctors did everything they could possibly do. Um, and December 19th, they called and said, we're at the end of our our medical limits. So at this point, you have a matter of time. And we thought maybe we had six weeks, six months, and she died in seven days, the day after Christmas, um, 2013. And so my sister and I were both in college at the time, but home from winter break. And it it felt like somebody took the rug out from underneath my feet, but then they took out the floor and then they took out the foundation of the house mm -hmm. and then they took out the ground from underneath it and then they took out the center of the earth. It was like I was falling and falling and falling. Um, and after four years of unending loss, it was, it was really the thing that broke me in half. Mm. You know, when, when I was young, younger, more in your age group, um, if someone got diagnosed with, with cancer of any kind, but including breast cancer, the expectation was not a very long life. But I've watched it change over time. I work with cancer a lot. And breast cancer in particular, people do, do often never get it again or have very long lives with minimal um, difficulties. And I wonder if that was your mental expectation that she would deal with it and then go forward and, you know, um, mm. have a longer life. Because I, I have noticed there's there's much more reason to think that might happen these days. I think, yes. I think in part because I saw the medical system, and this is a larger myth, again, I'm speaking in westernized society, that medicine is here to fix. Um, and because I saw doctors, surgeons, medical professionals save the life of my father, I thought the same would be true for my mother as well, especially because, as you said, now it seems like, especially with breast cancer, it's almost a rite of passage. And I hesitate to phrase it that way. Um, but there are so many people I know, friends whose moms have had it, and then uh, women who are slightly older than I am now, and even my age, who have had it, had it already, and it's been a part of their lives. But it's as if that chapter arrived, it was read, and then the chapter was closed and they're on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so it seems more transitional than final. And so for her cancer to return and metastasize so quickly and to literally take the life out of her, um, mm -hmm. it's like I barely had time to process that it had come back before it killed her. Mm -hmm. um, and, oh my God. And so when I say sudden death, I don't mean car accident, but oh my God, I had seven days to reckon with the fact that my mother was dying. That's, um, that's quite sudden. I had yes. <laughs> a decade. So <laughs> wow, I, would, yes. I would classify that as sudden 
Um, and, and also something interesting in what you said about the other things that went on leading up to that is that, um, you know, I noticed looking, uh, getting to know you by looking at your website and everything else that I look at to get ready for these, these hours, uh, the, the implication or, or maybe even stated, stated truth that lots of things fall into the category of loss. And you're telling me that many of them happened, even though a lot of them didn't, didn't lead to death. And, um, Especially what stands out to me is, um, you know, coming out as queer in any way, shape or form is a gain in that you have identified who you are, right? But it usually comes with really appreciable losses. Um, I know the reactions of some of the people when I came out in 1971, I think is, yes, it was not 70, it was 71. Um, It was a relief to recognize myself, but some of the reactions people had were definite losses. Uh, So I wonder, did you qualify that as sort of a grief experience, uh, you know, at the time or just as a painful experience? That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before, but I think what I saw first, especially because I was only 19 or 20, was pain, or I think maybe a better word for it was angst. It was like I was struggling from a heart space to make my family members, some of my close friends, and even the church that I more or less belonged to at the time understand, comprehend, accept all of who I was. And I was being met with logic or Bible verses or arguments or anything to the contrary. And so to say, this is who I am and I'm finally standing in my whole self, I'm refusing to sever pieces of myself to make other people happy anymore, um, was very liberating and very um, empowering to be able to do at that age, especially as I was, you know, you talk about a launching time to go out into the world, to form my own friend groups, to live on my own for the first time ever and to incorporate my sexuality into that. Um, But then to be met with resistance or pushback or strife was enormously hard. And I think what I felt at the time, also because I was coming out of being a teenager also, so (laughs) a lot of intense feelings. I was 17, Um, (laughs) so I remember. (laughs) So I think what what came forward was a lot of um, big emotion too, because I had never felt it before. And so angst and rage and this urge to fight with whatever was fighting me. And so the biggest pain point that continues on in my lost story with my mother is the fact that she failed to accept my identity as a queer woman before she died. She died and we were in the middle of a fight, essentially, Mm. about my future, where I would go after I died, the fact that Mm. the family, according to her religious beliefs, we would be separated forever and I would be in hell, whether or not she and my father would come to my future wedding, which like, still, I have no, (laughs) no plans to get married, I'm not engaged, but they were conversations that we were having because something like coming out of the closet it is a grief event. It changes not only how you think of yourself in the past, but what you do and how you show up among other people in the future. It was a doorway that I walked through that I could not unwalk through. Mm-hmm. And now I see it as a grief event. But yeah, I think your question was very well pointed that at the time, it was pain that I saw. I, I'm I'm interested in the way that, that um, 
because I've noticed it in myself and other people that we're, whatever we've already done to deal with challenges builds on itself. Uh, obviously, the, the profound loss event in my life was the death of my wife. But uh, looking back, I can see that work I did about other things contributed to how I handled that. And um, then going forward to my own parents dying and friends dying, etc., the way I navigate grief, uh, I still have to do it, but the way I navigate it is much different because of her death. Uh, there, there is a sort of continuous string, um, and I wondered if that's something you perceive in your own process. Yeah. Well, and I think it started with, <laughs> there are many things that die when somebody we love dies, not just the person, but our beliefs about the world. And for me, it was a sense of home, a relationship with a God that rewarded good deeds and punished bad ones. Um, and even my relationship with myself. And so walking into a future without my mother, I've had to grieve the death of safety and security I now very much realize that we live in a world where anything can happen at any time. And it is no truer than right now when we're in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and and, and what's, what's amusing and, and horrifying about that simultaneously is that there's so many people who are like, we're living in uncertain times and I'm filled with anxiety and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And um, I'm like, yeah, I, I've known this for like seven years since the death of my mother. <laughs> and there's no bitterness or resentment there. There's no there's no hatred, but it's kind of like, a, yeah, welcome to the grief club. We know from our experiences that anything can happen. And so future losses that have come, um, an engagement that was broken up, being let go. And now um, in the coronavirus pandemic, it's like, yeah, the way my grief is showing up is no longer with this foundation of there are stable places to return to and there are things I can always count on, but my foundation is literally instability because we live in a world where anything can happen. Um, and so I feel as if I both love much greater because I know that the things that I love can be taken from me at any moment. And so if I'm in, I'm all in. There's no one foot in the door and one foot out. Um, but then simultaneously too, hmm, I, want, I hesitate to say that it's easier to let go or to release things or people. Um, but I am a lot better at grieving them when they leave. It's interesting uh, because I've been asked, you know, since I am a grief counselor, uh, is, my, is grief easier for me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. I get that question a lot know, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people say with a hopeful air in there. <laughs> and I say, no, but what is easier is I know I have to do it. I don't dilly-dally. Yes. Well, and it's like I become familiar with pain. It, it has become a companion to me, maybe not a friend, but um, I see it and I recognize it. And I was like, oh, I've seen you before. You've darkened my doorway before. Come on in. Let's get this thing over with. You know? <laughs> I resonate oh, with a that. A moment of extreme agony. Come on ahead. Let's just go for it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And even I've talked about going all in, but going all into that experience too. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I resonate with that. Uh, and there's something, there's a, there's a con common thread through your book that I would say is about uh, uh, different ways to say the same thing, which is whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, it's normal. 
Yes. <laughs> and I think that connects with what we're talking about, you know, uh, this just kind of being willing to allow it and not thinking that just because it's painful, we're doing something wrong. Right. Because so often, again, going back to our westernized medical system, pain is a signal of being unwell. Uh, but in grief, pain is actually a sign that you're doing it right. To, to feel something is a sign that you're on the right track. This is, a, this is a part of the experience. This goes along with the experience of grief. Well, I guess I would say, too, that it isn't just that we're, we're not encouraged to grieve or we're not taught to grieve. I think that there's a way we're not taught to have any feelings. Um, so, yes. you know, that, that if we have negative feelings, but even sometimes positive feelings that are too much, too big, um, something's wrong with that. So uh, we come with very little practice at having huge feelings often. Um, and, and that's part of the complication, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and it was a story that I told myself in my grief too, that if I showed too big, too much, too bad, or too sad, that I would be declared crazy and no one would ever want to be around me. So I, I definitely um, catastrophized the whole thing. I was like, no one will want to be my friend. I'll get fired from my job. I like, I just turned everything. I don't know why that would be possible, but um, I, I had it's a, all these it's a stories strong fantasy, about being huh? so, yeah, so outcast from so the rest of the world. Let's not shorten that because it's time for a break. Let's come back to this sense of being afraid of the consequence if we just ignite let let room for leave room for our grief let's come back to that and listeners you can find links to my website at, and social media at the good grief page at voice america and you can also find a link to better help an organization that i am a sponsor for that offers online counseling i've checked them out thoroughly so if you're looking for a way to do online counseling they're a really good resource and to find Shelby Forsythia, go to www.shelbyforsythia.com. It's S-H-E-L-B-Y-F-O-R-S-Y-T-H-I-A.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page 
or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Shelby Forsythia, author of Your Grief, Your Way. And before the break, Shelby, we were just beginning to refer to the kinds of, uh, the ways we talk to ourselves in um, new and unfamiliar grief. You were saying you were afraid people would, if if you showed your grief, people would think you were crazy or you'd lose your job or, you know, Basically, life would completely fall apart is <laughs> the message mm-hmm. I got from that. And maybe also you'd be rejected. Yeah. Uh, yes. Were, were, were there also more internal things? Were there, was there danger that you might reject yourself or um, judge yourself crazy? Or, or, or was it more external? I think it was definitely internal but internalized because it was taught by the external if that makes sense because i think if you look at kids who grieve it's almost as if they know how it goes kids will throw a temper tantrum and then 30 minutes later be asking for a juice box because they've allowed all these emotions to move through their bodies and then as we progress to adulthood we're taught that these these outbursts or these wide swings of emotion are no longer appropriate and so to to sit buttoned up with a tie on at a funeral instead of wailing is far more appropriate. And I had to allow myself to unlearn all of that. And this is a great deal of the contents of my first book, Permission to Grieve. I talk about two big concepts that force us to deny ourselves permission to grieve. The first is life rejection, where we're taught to quarantine off parts of our lives that are bad or hard. Um, So if your relationship hits the rocks, distract yourself and focus on work. Or if work is bad, focus on how good your health is. But when grief comes, it's all bad. So you have to reject (laughs) the entirety of your life. Um, And that's a thing that society teaches. And then the other thing that society teaches us is to reject pieces of ourselves that are ugly, inappropriate, unattractive, too loud, too big, too sad, too hard. Um, And they're things that that we internalize. And so this was very much a process of self-rejection. I thought um, to express grief would mean another kind of death, a death of the self. I didn't use these words at the time, but I knew to go all the way in, I would have to let something die. And I didn't know if I could handle it. I, I work with a lot of clients who talk about Um, how to sit and stay in painful emotions because the feeling of the pain, the overwhelm of it all, it's like this thing might just kill me. And I think that's really normal in grief, but I didn't know that. And so I was convinced that to allow grief in would break me further than I had already been broken. And I was scared to know what that would look like because I had already been broken so much 
by the death of my mother. And so there was a lot of fear involved and then a lot of self-hatred and self-rejection for feeling so much fear about it. So it's a very vicious cycle. I use this term called mind circling a lot of like, we just get stuck in these ratcheting thoughts that spin around and they're all about the same 10 or 15 thoughts, but we live there very much in the aftermath of loss kind until of something else inside your head. Yes. Yes. Yeah, something else. Yeah. You're, you're reminding me of, of, um, uh, I spent a lot of time with Stephen Levine when my, when my wife was, uh, sick and, uh, we'd go together and, I was once describing to him that I was um, afraid to open all the doors to her because I was trying to, I realized I was trying to save something for after, after she died, you know, so I was kind of holding back something in reserve. And he said, oh, don't bother with that because after she dies, you're going to reincarnate anyway. And <laughs> I think of that when you're talking about we have to become a new self. And it turned out to be remarkably true that I just was not the same person. Uh, but that being told that along the line was very helpful to just get thrown into the middle of that experience would have been so much harder. I like that phrasing of reincarnation because we do because become- You don't have to die to do person. it. You, know? <laughs> you can do it while you're living. You're gonna do it. You know? You're not gonna be the same person anymore. I'd love for people to hear a bit out of the book and maybe you could share uh, one of your January um, excerpts. Yes, so this is actually one that's been getting a remarkable amount of feedback from people who read early copies of the book. They're like, oh my gosh, you included a quote from Lemony Snicket. So apparently this resonates with a lot of people, but this is an entry from January 21st, uh, page 15 for anybody keeping score at home. It is a curious thing, the death of a loved one. It is like walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark and thinking there is one more stair than there is. Lemony Snicket. There's a groundlessness in life after loss, as if somebody is pulling the rug out from under you again and again. It's hard to find anything stable and secure to stand on, and when you do, there's always the fear that it's going to be taken away. Know that this sense of not having legs to stand on is completely normal and is a very real sensation brought on by loss. It's not pleasant by any means. In fact, it can be downright terrifying, but it is an expected part of grief. There's a, there's a metaphor I have in my head about grief sometimes, that uh, grief's an ocean, at, but we don't have a boat. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then as time goes on, you kind of build a boat underneath you, <laughs> but it's still a storm. <laughs> so that, that, that makes me think about that because it's really not under your conscious control. It happens as it, as it does. And you either say yes or no. Yes. And well, so many things, again, so many things are being lost all at once. That's, uh, you know, I can no longer cling to my health because that's gone out the window. I can't cling to my work because my focus is shot. I can't cling to my relationships because they're all changed because I'm a grieving person now. And so it's it's all of the things that used to feel safe and secure do not any longer. And it's like, yeah, that, that rug or that floor is being yanked out from under you again and again and again. I want to I want to uh, highlight one one aspect of that, which is changing relationships. I don't know if this was true for you, but uh, 
you know, when my wife was first sick, no one really knew how to handle us, <laughs> to be yes. honest. And then, um, y- you know, we were pretty young in our 30s, uh, not as young as you, but pretty young. Uh, and then two things happened. The people who could catch up and figure out how to be with us grew with us. And we found some people who were experiencing similar things. So they were growing because of their things. Um, and some people dropped away. Uh, I find that the older I get, the more people have had experiences like this. And so um, there are fewer people who can't relate at all to having a major loss, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder what it was like for you at 21, because the fact is, statistically, a lot of people in that age group have loss, but it's not really talked about. And so there can be such a profound loneliness um, because it's kind of out of step with what everyone thinks you're supposed to be doing. Uh, did you experience some of that with your friends and, you know, um, cohorts, as it were? Yeah. And it was, it's something that I continue to grieve. And if I could do any part of my life over, it would be college without the death. Um, (laughs) Because Mm. I feel as if I missed out on some great experience that I didn't fully get to take part of because both of my parents for four years were either sick or dying or dead. Um, And I had so many friends who, who understood that I was going through something hard and complicated but in a college arena, the thing that you do when something is hard or complicated is go to a party and drink. And it just wasn't <laughs> uh-huh. something that resonated with me. I was like, that's not going to work. Not only am I going to feel bad, but I'm going to have a hangover in the morning. So like, this is not going to work for me. Um, and, I, and I had friends who tried to relate and tried to be there for me and tried to comprehend, I think, what was going on. But because they had also not experienced some kind of deep or great loss. It was like they got to the 70 or 80 yard line, but they couldn't quite reach me at 100. And so there was still some some airspace where we were kind of shouting at each other or the language is getting lost in translation. And so um, remarkably, something I observed and continue to kind of look back and reflect on is my friendships with people who are decades older than me because they knew what grief was. And one of my dear friends who became a great mentor to me was actually one of my professors who knew that my mother had died over winter break and she would regularly invite me into her office where I would have meltdowns and, and cry or like work on homework where I wouldn't have to be around other students who were like trying to catch glances at the girl whose mom died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she very much provided a safe space for that. But I found out later that it was because she had known a depth of great grief. And so even now, I'm constantly looking towards or ahead of me to people who are just a little farther along on the road um, because I feel, I'm like, you know something I don't know. And then simultaneously, the longer I do this work, like you said, I'm finding so many people in their 20s and early 30s who have lost parents, who have lost children, who've lost siblings, who have lost best friends, and it totally rocked their world. And yet this same feeling of loneliness or nobody else knows this is very pervasive. Um, And I'll say this too, this is a thing I'd like to change, but I don't know where to start. So if somebody would like to contact me about it, I would love to partner with somebody on this, but um, changing how grief counseling is offered on college campuses, because the support that I found was so unhelpful. It was further devastating to me to be sitting across from a, a college counselor 
and for them to not be able to comprehend, understand, or support me in the aftermath of my mom's death. And so was, there was the um, ostracization from my peers, but then also in the places where help is quote unquote supposed to be, um, I felt like that institution sort of failed as well. And that was even harder because I'm like, well, I've exhausted both my options. I've exhausted my friends and family. And then I've also exhausted the place where I'm supposed to uh, logically find help and support. So it was very, very lonely. And it was six months. I, I finished um, my last semester of college in the last or the first six months after my mom's death. Um, but to this day, that which is, is probably which the is, most isolating time of my life. Which is a bit of a miracle, I might say, to be able to stay focused. I know, um, if you know who Claire Bidwell-Smith is, she's, mm -hmm. uh, she lost her mother when she was just starting college, and she ended up dropping out. And uh, she wrote an incredibly good memoir about her mom's and dad's death. Her, they were both diagnosed when she was 14. Her dad died when she was 25. Rules of inheritance, <laughs> just mm -hmm. for, do a plug for Claire. And, um, you know, it is a really, uh, nobody could really help her. And the other thing that stands out there is, um, it's it's astonishing to me how many therapists are not good at grief. Yes. Um, and I learned this, I first really understood it at a deep level when I started getting clients coming to me who had had to leave their therapist because they had a big loss and they, they just couldn't get the kind of support they needed. Um, the therapist was trying to manage their emotions or, you know, figure out how they could feel better or, you know, all kinds of stuff that actually doesn't work. Um, so I've done a lot of training for therapists about grief because it's a real deficit. It is tremendously. And it's heartbreaking that that's the case. Um, simultaneously, I know that therapists receive so much training in so many arenas that I can't place 100% of the blame uh, on them, but simultaneously, yeah, it's like, where else are we societally told to go when we're grieving and things happen? So I had to uncover my own different sources of help and support. And it felt very much like being cast out in the desert. And then I had to find my way back. Uh, and also along the lines of that, that voice you had in your head that said, people are going to think I'm crazy. Um, if you go to a therapist in pain and then they can't really, they don't really get what is happening, that would sort of accent that feeling, wouldn't it? Oh, totally. Because, of <laughs> course, what do we do in grief but turn more blame in on ourselves for grieving instead of right. being like, maybe there's something wrong with the system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yes. uh, it's, it's time for our, our uh, next break, and we'll come back in a few minutes and talk some more. Um, listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, the Good Grief Host page, and to find Shelby Forsythia, go to shelbyforsythia.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Shelby Forsythia, author of Your Grief, Your Way, and we've been talking about um, support, lack of it. And I've had in the back of my mind that it's ironic to look back on those times where we're really, you know, drowning in a, in a way. But that is where we get our feet to do the kinds of work you and I both do now. I have, of course, a very longitudinal view since um, I've been doing this work ever since she died, you know, 25 years ago. But, um, and I'm very interested in how that's changed over time. And I'll bet you could tell me things about how your grief has changed over this time. Obviously, now you do grief as work, you know, (laughs) you're not, you're not um, drowning in the sea, exactly anymore. Uh, But what, what do you have to say about kind of the the longitudinal aspect of grief and how, for instance, your book was written, I imagine, because you didn't get that support and you wanted to offer that. Um, ironically, that's that's where some of our calling comes from, I'm assuming. But how did that come about? Yeah, I think you've hit a nail on the head there is I almost wish I could publish a really big book and keep publishing it or keep writing it as I as I live of things nobody told me about grief. (laughs) Because every single book that I produce is there's a quote from Elizabeth Gilbert in her book Big Magic, where she's like, please don't do creative things. Please don't write books. Please don't make art to help me please make art because you want to make it. And so I make my art to help the person that I was. And if it helps other people, that's phenomenal. But every single thing I put out into the world is I wish someone would have handed me this when I was 21 and my mom died. And so there is a part of me constantly as I am guiding others in their grief, as I'm offering supporting resources and and all these other 
places that people can find help and structure and vocabulary for what they're going through, all of it in some part is a gift to the girl that I was the day after my mom died. Um, and it's not necessarily that I, I think it would have made my grief experience better, but I think I would have stopped fighting myself a lot sooner. And that was where a great source of pain came from because so much pain came from the death of my mother, but then I heaped on even more pain by fighting myself or fighting my own reactions to grief. And I think I could have eased up on that quite a bit if I had known that what I was going through was normal, that the emotions were gonna stop at some point or turn into something else. Um, yeah, and so every single thing that I write, it comes from the observations that I have now and from working with clients and interviewing guests on my own uh, podcast and, and continuing to interact with people just out in daily life. And also the gift of my work is constantly something I'm giving back to my 21-year-old self. Mm. You make me think of, of one of my um, uh, grief gurus, I guess, <laughs> Francis mm. Weller. And he says, um, in order to grieve well, you have to be alone with it and you have to be with it in community. That one, or if you only do one or the other, it will be incomplete. Um, so that that sense of coming into a field with other people and claiming our grief and talking about it, I think I've found to be so vital to me. And that's probably part of why I do this show. <laughs> yes. Know. And that, well, that's a great deal of why I did mine too, because once I understood that what I was experiencing was grief and the great depth of it, I started exploring grief as a subject. And I was like, wow, look how many other people are here. I'm like, look, there's so many of us. Um, and it was great. <laughs> like, it was, I found like almost the, almost the whole universe is at Yes. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I thought that nobody was grieving. And it turns out I'm like, wait, we're all grieving. We're all grieving. <laughs> do you know that revolutionary? Do you know that Buddha story where someone, a woman loses her child and goes to the Buddha and asks the Buddha to bring the child back to life. And the Buddha says, go to every door. And if you find a house that has not been touched by grief, I will grant your wish. And yes. um, she's not able to find one, of course. Uh, it's a great, a great metaphoric story. Yes. Uh, I think we're talking about the practice it takes to, uh, to learn to navigate. It's not, we don't need practice at grieving because that comes kind of naturally, but we need practice at supporting ourselves while we grieve, I guess. Could you read that um, excerpt about practicing grief that seems in line with what we're talking about? Oh, of course. Yeah, this is one of my favorites because there's some humor involved. You and I have been laughing a lot on this call, which people don't expect from people who work in the grief space. But um, yeah, there's a humor except in doing we do, for right? the first time. Yeah, except <laughs> we do. Absolutely. Um, so this is an entry from May 13th in Your Grief Your Way, and this is on page 71. It reads, remind yourself daily that you are practicing grief. You are learning what it means to be a grieving person. And for that reason, you deserve mercy and second chances galore. Reframing grief as a lifetime skill building process instead of a one time mountain to climb does wonders for a grieving heart, especially if you, like me, have the tendency to should yourself to perfection. 
When you feel you've screwed up or made a mess of things when it comes to your grief, say, out loud or in your head, I'm just practicing, or this is my first time grieving. See if it helps you grant yourself the space and time to learn. You just brought Stephen Levine back to my mind again because he used to say, you've all been should on long enough. <laughs> uh, yes, and you are speaking to a recovering perfectionist. And I think um, I, I work with grievers in an online course I teach called Life After Loss Academy. And there's, whole, there's one whole week, a whole seven days that's devoted to releasing yourself from the myth of the perfect griever. <laughs> because once we allow ourselves to grieve, we're like, okay, I'm grieving, but now how do I do it right? And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's take that question out of consideration and just but that ask is such what a is natural, appropriate your grief. You know, I, I'm so glad I had practice just sitting with things as they were before my wife died because I, my struggle with that phenomenon was much earlier. I didn't encounter much of it in grief at all. But it was because I had been practicing... Um, having my feelings imperfectly for so long, mm. <laughs> you know, that it kind of kept going. And the other agreement I made with myself was that I could have anything I wanted if I could bring it about. As long as I had childcare and enough money, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, could have, <laughs> I could have whatever I wanted, um, which was a big help also. <laughs> In case anyone's out there anticipating grief, those, those two things helped me immeasurably. Yes. Well, and one of my favorite um, exercises from Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B, that I kind of co-opted in a way for this book is, is creating a new list of house rules for grief, especially if you lose somebody in a household and you live with other people. But to say things like, any emotion is allowed at any time. We have an open door policy when it comes for grief. Whoever uses the last Kleenex has to go out and buy more. And so kind of literally restructuring your environment so that the experience of grief is allowed is mm. is really important and and initiating these new rules for your life after grief yeah absolutely because that i mean i still all these years later i still live by rules that not everyone finds comfortable uh, even my even my children, uh, one of them recently said to me, uh, you know, mom, not everyone wants to talk about death as much as you do. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you know, my rules are talk about what's happening in your head. <laughs> I mean, not harmfully, but, you know, uh, let it out of there. <laughs> so uh, there can be downsides, but I'll take it. Yes. Yeah. And I have experiences with that, too. And even now as I continue to date and make friends and, and just move around as a human in the world, I kind of have not a prerequisite because it's not necessarily a disqualifier, but I've noticed I have very uh, a very hard time making friends with people who have not experienced a great loss because mm -hmm. there's something that they don't know yet. And it's no fault of theirs that they haven't lived through something that's massively changed their life. Um, but also it's almost as if there's a part of me that they'll never understand until they've joined the club in some way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a death. I'm not requiring death as a price of admission <laughs> um, to be in Although some kind it doesn't of hurt. Me, but it doesn't hurt either. And I think a lot of grieving people listening will know this experience of like, you, you know, you lose a child or a spouse or a friend or a parent and you meet somebody else who's had the same loss and there's relief. 
when you meet them and, and you acknowledge that this is true for both of you, it's like, oh God, there's so much I don't have to try and be around you. What you're saying resonates so deeply with me. Uh, when I when I met my second wife, um, we met at a at a, uh, a dancing event, a dancing lesson, basically. But we ended up talking most of the night, and our point of connection, one of the strongest, probably the strongest point of connection, is that her father had died four months before my wife. Wow! Um, and it was a big relief. Uh, because that conversation could be entirely fluid. Uh, you know, when we both shared it, the losses we'd had, there wasn't any recoil. You know, it, it was a, it grew the conversation. It didn't stop the conversation, if that makes sense. Well, yes. Um, and then and there's it, no fear of no fear. what I'm saying and, is crazy. <laughs> right. Well, and, and also just got us close very fast on a level that wasn't just, you know, I'm attracted to you or whatever it usually is when you meet someone that you're thinking of getting involved with. It was at that other level of we have a shared experience that's very meaningful to us. Yeah. So I'm all for finding people that have had some, some depth of experience that informs how they live going forward. Yeah, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that too. So we're getting to the end of our time together, and I want to give you just an opportunity to kind of um, plug the things you do because uh, you have you offer a lot of resources to people, and I think it would be helpful for them to to sort of have a sense from you uh, what you've got going on. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Um, uh, everything there is to know about me is all at shelbyforsythia.com. And kind of on a sliding scale from completely free to uh, working with me one-on-one, -on -one, you could probably start with uh, my podcast, Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss, or my blog on medium.com, um, as well as anything I post on social media is totally free uh, to consume. I lead these grief support groups once a month on Patreon. And so for $3 a month, you can come on and, and join the live chat on YouTube and we'll take questions and share resources. I mean, everything from how do I sleep after somebody I love dies or my friends are not understanding or the holidays are coming up and I don't know how to form new rituals with my family. Um, and then lately I've started leading these workshops that are 90 minutes on Zoom around different topics. So feeling crazy after the death of a loved one or how do I sit and stay in painful emotions. Um, and then if you'd like to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, that's probably the most intensive way you can get support after a loss. Great, thanks for sharing that. And I really want to thank you for being with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Next week, I'll have Paria Hasuri to talk about her child transitioning as a transgender youth and the book she wrote about it. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health.